Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today we're going to try to make sense of what's going on in college athletics. Uh, we, we have Big Ten expansion, the effect on student athletes. We have name, image, and likeness, all of these things. We've had our guests before. They're terrific. I hope you enjoy having listening to them again. Jeremy Gray, Senior Associate Athletic Director for Strategic Communications director of the Cuban Center at IU, and Galen Clavio, director of undergraduate studies for the Media School and the director of the National Sports Journalism Center at IU. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send us your questions or your comments there. You can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811 or toll-free, 877-285-9348. So welcome back to both of you. Um, Galen's here in the studio. Jeremy's over Zoom. I've asked, I mentioned both of them. It seems like we're going to do this show every time. There are two new schools added to the Big Ten. Um, Big Ten just added Oregon and Washington. Are we done, Jeremy? Are we done? I, I, I'm an unreliable narrator on uh, I think every time I, I come on a show like this, I say that the conference at this time has no plans to expand, and then two weeks later, I'm proven wrong. Uh, but but I do think that the Big Ten, after uh, not only negotiating a new media rights deal, but then very quickly and nimbly renegotiating a new media rights deal on top of that one after the addition of these latest two schools, I do think it's uh, it's a period in which the Big Ten is looking to settle to see where the dust lands in the landscape. Galen? I don't think they're done yet. <laughs> but I don't think it's – I think the Big Ten would be happy to be done, just like I think they would have probably been fine with standing pat with just adding USC and UCLA. But the market changes, and what prompted Oregon and Washington jumping to the Big Ten was the media deal that the Pac-12 got, which was not a very good deal. And, and I think Oregon and Washington justifiably were looking for a life raft. So – uh, you know, I think the, the Big Ten would be happy where they're at right now. They've got the brands that they want. But if, for instance, the Atlantic Coast Conference has a media issue or somebody tries to get out, it could reshuffle the deck again. When you say a, a good deal versus a not-so-good deal, how much difference are we talking about in terms of money for a school? Well, it would be. go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, I prefer a Big Ten and a Pac-12 school as previously constituted with the with the two separate deals. It would have been a, a 30 to 40 million dollar difference per school. And I think it's important to, to note for uh, for college athletic departments, there's really four main buckets of revenue. And I think one that is overstated is donations. Uh, so for Indiana's you know, $120 million budget, about 15 million of that is is in donations. Then you have ticket sales, then you have outside contracts like Adidas, Coca-Cola. Uh, for forge rights at our facilities, as well as Gatorade and other things like that, signage in the stadium. And then the biggest one is uh, is, is the television share. And a great year for our development office might add $2 million to that. Uh, and I would assume that the same would be true for the Pac-12 schools. Um, but a $40 million difference is something that you just, you, you just can't ignore. So I, I'm curious about the uh, when I think of the last deal, Washington, Oregon, to go up to to eighteen schools, I was just curious why not 
um, Cal and Stanford, which seem to have the same kind of academic qualities, um, and it would bring the Big Ten up to 20 schools. What 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 made uh, Oregon and Washington stand out when Stanford and Cal didn't? Galen? Well, there, I will let you answer this as well, Jeremy, in a second. But I would say from my perspective, Oregon and Washington, from a football perspective, are much more national brands. They bring in audiences uh, in their own markets. Obviously, Washington with the Seattle market and the Pacific Northwest and Oregon uh, with the Portland market and the other part of that. Plus, Oregon's really become a national brand over the last decade or so. And while Stanford and Cal are certainly top-notch academic institutions, probably the best in the Pac-12, uh, they they both, to some degree, receded a bit in terms of, of the audiences that they bring in and, and what they could bring to the table. And I think there was a a way to do the math for Fox and the Big Ten's television partners to find additional money to bring Oregon and Washington in. It didn't really exist to the same degree with Stanford and Cal. I, I, I would agree. And I, I would say if you look at everything from attendance to fan support, there is a market difference in the state of California and fan support for UCLA and USC in comparison to Cal and Stanford. So uh, I think it's important to note that both Cal and Stanford are at the very top of the country in Olympic sports excellence. Um, Indiana regularly bumps into Cal at the National Swim Championships, for instance, and I believe Stanford has surpassed UCLA and USC in total national championships across all sports. They just don't draw in the audience as big as their name is in academia and as well as Olympic sports. Uh, they, they, they don't carry large television audiences, and I think uh, as the Big Ten you know, crunched the numbers, those four West Coast schools are giving them the San Francisco market. So, so that that was going to be another question. Is that this? We, when we think of these things in terms of football. I mean, inevitably, that's the the leader in in a lot of these deals. But this obviously affects every sport at IU, every sport at these other schools. So, uh, can you say a little more, Jeremy? You probably can speak to this. The what this means for the other teams, the non football and for women's sports. I, I think that's a very important question. And I, and I think uh, one of the things that every institution in the Big Ten, including the four new ones, are going to have to realize is they're going to have to recalibrate some expectations. Um, finishing seventh in the Big Ten now might be a really big deal for our tennis program and warrant a contract extension for the coach. Uh, we're seventh in the Big Ten now doesn't necessarily feel that way. It became really difficult to win a track and field Big Ten championship in uh, you know track and field with Oregon and USC joining the league. Probably Washington's soccer coach is a little bummed that he's joining the Big Ten with Indiana and Maryland. Um, pathways to championships became much more difficult for all 18 schools. And while that seems like a small price to pay, um, it is an enormous motivating factor for student athletes at all schools and all sports. And then I think something that's also important to consider is travel considerations for student athletes. Uh, I think it's always been overblown uh, when it comes to football. They play on Saturdays. I think I told you before we came on the air, uh, the student athletes just left for Maryland. So they were able to get all their coursework in. It's 12 Saturdays in the fall. Uh, that is not true for a softball team that plays 56 softball games in one spring. That is not true for a volleyball program that plays a full 30 game or 30 match schedule in the fall. Um, you are looking at much more challenging travel situations and potential missed class time. One thing that the Big Ten has been working on uh, very quickly, um, and I've had to be in a lot of meetings because I oversee six sports here, they're trying to find manageable ways to deal with schedule to, to mitigate those changes. So um, Indiana's baseball trip to the West Coast is going to always take place over spring break. And when UCLA is playing Rutgers, it will always take place over spring break. Is there a place that seven schools can go to for a weekend in Arizona and play each other all in tennis to get those conference games or competitions out of the way. So they only have to have one big trip like that a semester. These are things that are still being worked out. 
and in, in reality, I think it's going to be much tougher for the four West Coast schools than the 14 pre-existing members of the Big Ten Conference to deal with. So, so will there be, uh, and forgive me, I'm a little hazy on the details of this, but isn't it the case already that in the in the in football, there are kind of divisions within the Big Ten. There's the East and the West, or was that last year? And things have changed again. There, there have all, uh, since uh, it has expanded to twelve teams uh, and now fourteen. Uh, there have been divisions. The divisions are now going to go go away, um, just because of competitive imbalance. Uh, you know. If you pick the East, then you get Penn State, Ohio State, and Michigan, and it's just kind of unfair. So they're they're reshuffling uh, the deck that way. But uh, I have to ask, though, it seems to me adding Washington and Oregon would make it more likely or more feasible to have an East and West division again, and the competitive balance would be sort of take care of itself. Well, except the problem is that if you're locked in to playing – eight other teams every year with one crossover game, which is what you'd run into with an 18-team Big Ten, you still have that same level of imbalance. And we've seen that you know, in the East and West divisions that they've had, where the West has been the weaker division. They've, they, I, don't think, I think they've, maybe they've won one Big Ten championship game. What they're switching to is a model where they want every school to play every other school. What was it, once every three years or four years, Jeremy? And yes. and and so the idea is it's a conference. We want everybody to play each other more often and more consistently and also spread out some of the scheduling challenges that schools like Indiana or Rutgers or Maryland have had over the last six or seven years. Let me give our uh, contact information again. You can send us a question, news at indianapublicmedia.org or on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also call in 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. I might add that um, Nathan, our producer, reached out to the athletic directors from Oregon and Washington and the athletic departments, and they were traveling for football this week too, so we didn't get anybody to come on the air. We did have a, a question come in from non-sports person here who says would that would like she would like to know are there are there any other reasons to keep expanding and changing conferences other than money? Uh, yeah, there are there are some. Uh, one would be. Uh, Stability. I think Indiana's very lucky to be in one of the two stable conferences, which would be uh, the Southeastern Conference and the Big Ten Conference. And obviously, stability and money might be a distinction and not a difference. Um, but, you know, us knowing where our home is, it's a very, is, a, is a very good thing. I think if you're in the, the ACC or the Big 12 right now, uh, you're asking hard questions about the future. Indiana's not asking hard questions about the future. So I think the stability, I think, is uh, is really important. And for the Big Ten, uh, and I, I don't want to be, you know, condescending to the SEC, who's, you know, great institutions there as well. There is still a, an academic component to uh, the, the universities that are selected for membership. And there is partnerships amongst those universities. And um, the, the the four new schools uh, on those merits definitely fit fit the bill. The other thing I'll say to the caller or the, the questioner is that we've had about 45 years of the current model of college sports. Back in 1978, there was a split into 1A and 1AA in Division One, And the purpose of that was essentially to separate the schools that we're devoting a large number or relatively large number of resources towards athletics, specifically football, but other sports as well, versus the ones that couldn't necessarily commit to that level for a variety of reasons. And right now what we're going through is essentially another round of that. So, yes, money certainly plays into it. But what you're really seeing, from my eyes at least, is a split for the upper half of what we would now call FBS uh, division, subdivision or Division 1A, where the schools that – you know, have a certain revenue threshold and a certain level of students that they're trying to bring in or academic prestige that they're trying to carry across uh, marketing-wise, it makes sense for those schools to start to congregate together. And so that's why 
you know, you see the four schools that are joining the Big Ten from the Pac-12. You see Cal and Stanford joining the ACC, and it's kind of unfortunately left Oregon State and Washington State behind. But if you were going to look through that that conference, those would have been the two schools you looked at and said they're probably the ones that are at the lowest uh, threshold mark for being able to continue where they're at. And I think they're going to end up going backwards a bit. Yeah. Kind of kind of makes me crazy to think of the uh, the two West Coast schools being in the Atlantic Coast Conference. But <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I thought that was the Pacific Ocean, but yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> Uh, I want. It, th- I'm not sure I quite how to phrase this question, but it just I'm trying to think about the world from the point of view of the media companies because uh, uh, first of all, I think the, the Big Ten it, their media um, contract is with Fox. I believe. partially, but also partially. now NBC and CBS. So, could you say more about yeah. what what's what's that? So what's it, what are these consolidations and moves doing to the to the media companies themselves? It, well, it's interesting, and, and Jeremy, I think, can speak to a lot of this as well. But I I talk about this in my sports media class all the time. Uh, there's two models at play right now. The SEC and ESPN are really joined at the hip. Uh, the SEC's network is owned by ESPN. Uh, the SEC is kind of fully embedded in the ESPN environment. The Big Ten kind of had a foot in that camp and then also had Fox as a primary partner. Uh, Fox owns the majority of the share in the Big Ten network, for instance. But the Big Ten has decided to try to make itself into the national conference, and they've really followed what the National Football League has done. If you think about the NFL and the way that their media contracts work, they have a contract with CBS, they have a separate contract with Fox, they have a separate contract with the NBC, they have a separate contract with ESPN. They've partnered with everybody. And so, you know, there's there's sides being drawn, and the big players are basically Fox versus ESPN, but it's interesting that we're seeing NBC and CBS now in this mix and now partner directly with the Big Ten. I, I think that's probably a good thing down the, down the line for the Big Ten, but it's an interesting development. And, and I would say, too, I think there's two important things to note as, as you look at these uh, media arrangements and deals. The first is the second most popular sport in America by a wide margin is college football. So the NFL laps the field several times over. Number two is college football. Then there is a massive gap between college football and dependent upon who is playing in the championship, Major League Baseball or the NBA. Uh, the NBA gets a ton of coverage. Major League Baseball has got an enormous legacy. But they their ratings are about half of those of college football. So college football is the second most valuable sports property in the United States. And so that drives a lot of the conversations. Uh, far more than than college basketball. There's also the reality that the last thing that is truly appointment television in the country that is valuable to advertisers are live sporting events. So it's the second most popular sport. People still will meet at noon to watch Michigan play Ohio State. And so advertisers can target wide swaths of audience there with their advertising dollars. So it makes it valuable. But then also... You have these legacy media companies that are trying to migrate to streaming platforms that will be viable in the Netflix uh, uh, way. Well, there's two ways to do that. Original programming and live content. Well, there's no better live content than uh, sports. So they're trying to also build streaming platforms like Peacock and other things uh, through uh, live sporting uh, content. And uh, second most valuable live sport in America is college football. So it's legacy media companies trying to uh, migrate to streaming platforms uh, a- as well as the second most popular sport being valuable to advertisers on their traditional linear networks. We got a comment from uh, uh, one of our listeners who says, as a fan, it makes it harder to go to games when they're all the way on the West Coast. I'm going to add to that question and say, where does a fa- fan fit in to all this? You're talking about... Uh, and, I, and I wonder about even attendance. I mean, attendance at an IU game. If you've got West Coast schools coming in here, they're le- a lot less likely, I would think, to come to a game than fans from, well, Ohio State we know, Michigan we know, but even schools that are closer, closer by. 
It's an it's an interesting topic because it does make it harder for fans to to go to road games. We don't have a huge travel culture with sports in the United States the same way that you would see in say England when everything's a train ride away and and you can get there relatively easily. Um, I also think it's important to point out that it looks bad, and certainly these decisions are being made with a television audience in mind as opposed to an in-person audience in mind. But we've also seen a falling off of in-person attendance at a lot of college sports events, including college football, over the last decade. And it's not just at you know the places you would think, but we've seen it at SEC schools. Nebraska just announced that they're renovating their stadium and they're dropping their capacity by about 10,000 seats and that's a place that's sold out for the last 40 years, maybe. Uh, so I think that as as audiences shift and as live sporting event attendance like in person is less important to people, the television audience becomes more so. And so more decisions get made with that in mind. But even, and Bob, I, yeah. I, you, you might be the nicest person to run into at, at Lenny's or a local establishment. So I hate to disagree with you. Uh, a, a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that has made the Big Ten extraordinarily powerful is that the graduates move everywhere. And uh, I I think it, when Indiana plays Washington in college basketball, the Alaska Airlines Center will be filled uh, with a fair number of IU fans. I think Hoosier fans uh, in Los Angeles will like watching us play USC and UCLA. I also think as far as home competitions, I think UCLA coming here to play basketball or USC coming here to play football will be a draw. Um, so I, I think while fans might not travel to the road venues, I think our team might be traveling to places where IU graduates already are. And I think the same would be true for Michigan, Michigan State, Wisconsin, Ohio State, and the other Big Ten schools. All yeah. right. I'm, I'm fully capable of being wrong on things, Jeremy. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let, but let me ask this other question. Um, Galen went through this whole uh, idea of, you know, we're going to the streaming market, and I think it was Galen, maybe it was you, Jeremy. Jeremy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we're going to the streaming market, we're going to Peacock. I mean, it seems to me that even fans of teams are maybe going to have to be spending more money to be able to follow them on television, and they're going to have to be open to different times. We just had a situation where, you know, Coach Allen talked about it. Um, I used playing on a Friday night up against the Bloomington South, Bloomington North high school football mm-hmm. game. You know, TV is setting – they're setting the times for a lot of these games, and now they're going to be putting them on different platforms that people have to pay for. Um, that doesn't seem very fan-friendly either. No, I, I would agree with you. As somebody who has to deal with that institutionally, it's like, oh, we're playing Rutgers at noon on Sunday. We're not going to have a student crowd, you know. Um you know, in college basketball, but that's so they can get a 12 to four o'clock and 6 p.m. game. They can they can talk about it being a packed Sunday on college basketball and Big Ten Network. So I do agree that uh, one of the things that college sports had for a long time, it's long been disrupted, to be fair, is there was a rhythm to it. You know, basketball play Wednesday and Saturday. Uh, if you were if you went to the University of Michigan, you could pretty much bank on your game being at three thirty in the afternoon. Um those things are, are changing. And, and I do think um, there is this kind of uh, brackish water of what do you subscribe to? What do you, what do you not? You still have traditional cable, but then you also have these streaming services. And if you bunch them up together, it costs more money than we had before. I do think that, that these things are making people make maybe hard choices on where to spend their entertainment dollar, and it is getting more expensive. So I agree with you. All of that's true. I mean, the the two things I'll say not not so much to push back, but just to highlight how it's much it's a much different environment now. You're you're right. Like we used to have games at very predictable times, but also a lot of Indiana football games weren't on television. Period. In the '80s and '90s, uh, you know, it really wasn't until the late '90s, early 2000s that you could get a full schedule. We were very spoiled with IU basketball for decades because it was always on WTTV. And we were one of the few schools in the country that had that kind of a setup. And so, look, the only thing worse than having to play at a time that you don't want is uh, not being on television at all. And so, yeah, it's not ideal, but I think that 
to some degree, it's it's good to be in a situation where you have to get a little bit uncomfortable in the slot that you're in because at least you're still relevant in the picture at that point. And the, the other thing to what Jeremy said, you know, the right now, you know, so many people, whether it's sports leagues, schools, conferences, they got used to all the money that came in from the cable bundle. Everybody had plenty of money to spend because there was so much money being spent on subscriptions by people who didn't watch sports. They never they never turned on ESPN, but they were paying $8 a month for it and didn't realize it through their cable bill. That's going away. We have about 60% of the cable subscribers today that we had eight years ago. And that's probably going to continue that direction. So it is going to get more expensive for the people that want to watch sports. But for all the people in your audience that don't want to watch sports, they should probably be like doing a little dance right now because they don't have to spend money on it if they don't want to. Interesting. Well, all of this, we were talking a bit about this before we went on the air about um, all these changes in just the world of sports media. Galen, I think you were talking about what, what this means for students who are studying sports journalism and and where that's headed. And uh, obviously, with the demise of newspapers, always these concerns about um, will, you know, will there be a, a market for people who want to go into that? And uh, there apparently is. There so can is. you say more about what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. No, we're, we're very lucky here at IU because I think we anticipated that the change was coming a little bit earlier than some other schools did. So you know, our sports media program has almost 300 students in it now. And we are incredibly fortunate. Uh, we partner with the athletic department and give students opportunities to do a variety of things that just weren't conceived of as possibilities uh, or were very uh, specialized kinds of things that maybe one or two people would get to do 15, 20 years ago. So whether it's students interning with the Cuban Center and doing social media content or photography or videography, I mean, that's being done on behalf of the athletic department on behalf of teams. You know, most teams, whether they're college athletic departments or professional sports teams, now have fully fleshed out media entities within them where they're creating their own media. And you need trained people to do that. And that's what a lot of our students have been doing. Uh, here in this building, in, in Radio TV Services, we have students doing practicums where they are working as crew members for Big Ten Plus broadcasts, which we do in partnership with the athletic department and the Big Ten Network. So we have students going down the road of production, you know, camera work, graphics, replay, directing. And not that those opportunities weren't around before, but there were so fewer of them. And you know, something that we were talking about earlier was high school sports being negatively affected because newspapers aren't covering them as much. But what's taking that gap and filling it is companies like Indiana SRN, which does coverage of high school sporting events where they go out and do streaming live coverage of games, which never existed before, or at least existed only in small, uh, you know, small areas. And so that's exciting because it's just changed the paradigm a bit. So, yeah, we're not necessarily training reporters that are going to go work for newspapers at the same rate, but we're training people to work in all of these other areas. And I would argue there's a lot more overall opportunities now than there used to be. Yeah, I, I, I would echo that. I, I think the days of having an Al Michaels who does every single conceivable thing and re retires is like the voice of sports for a whole generation, kind of the Walter Cronkite of sports. Those days are probably over. Uh, but the amount of people we're going to get opportunities to broadcast important sporting events across a variety of sports is greater than ever before. And I do think uh, and a big hat tip to Galen here. Uh, I think he's positioned along with others, the media school to, to really be preparing students for the, for that new reality. Jeremy, you, uh, you teach in that program, don't you? I do. It's not exactly Einstein's physics class at Princeton in the 1930s. So, I, I understand, uh, but what, I, I would not audit it. No, but, but yes, what, what, what is the top? <laughs> what is the topic of your the specific topic of the class that you teach? So I teach sportscasting 333 in the media school, um, and you know it's usually a Monday lecture, and then Wednesday they go into the Beckley studio. And they uh, they perform in some way, and I tell them to speed up, slow down, talk louder, pretend you like sports on the next take. I'm kind of a it's it's almost like American Idol. 
Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And he does a wonderful job with the class, too. I, I want to I ask you about the Cuban Center, which has been brought up a couple of times. I mean, you, you were there at the beginning of the Cuban Center, and you are, what, the director now? Director of the Cuban I Center? Am, yeah. Yeah. So what's an experience for a student who works at the Cuban Center? What kinds of skills are they learning? So uh, it, it falls into a couple of buckets. So digital social media, uh, which... For professional sports organizations, leagues, and college athletic departments is a rapidly expanding uh, job opportunity. So we have at any one time between six and eight interns that work in digital social media. Uh, there's also video. So these are the people who make the videos that you see on digital social media, as well as things that you will see on video boards um, and recruiting videos that they make on behalf of, uh, of teams. And we have somewhere in the order of 10 students who do that. We have 12 student photographers that cover a litany of events. And then um, we also have a, a slew of student graphic designers. And usually what we do is uh, we bring them along, you know, slowly. So uh, in your first couple months, you might be filing and editing video and making sure that we have it in storage. You might be you might be running photos up from the field of play from our photographers up to our digital social media person in the press box. And you also might get an opportunity to take pictures or do some video of maybe an out of season Olympic sports competition. And then you build your way up. And then by the end, uh, we send you on the road independent of full-time staff to, you know, provide content for, for, for our teams. And, um, you know, there, there's an iconic photo from about two, three years ago of Rob Finnessy after hitting a buzzer beating shot to beat Purdue where he's swimming in a sea of students. That was a student of ours who actually uh, went to the catwalk when IU had a lead late in the game, catwalk above the court and wanted the crowd reaction shot and got that photo. And she was profiled in the New York Times. And one thing that's really been heartening about these opportunities is you'll have, you know, former interns who are now the photographer for the Pittsburgh Steelers. They're the social media person for the Chicago Blackhawks. They now do uh, social media for NBC's Olympic e efforts. Uh, just seeing where the students have gone has been, uh, you know, one of the satisfying things about the job for sure. Yeah. Well, and I imagine, I suppose, with the expansion, there are then that many more opportunities for students to get get those, you know, live game coverage experiences. Yeah, it's and it's all over the place, too. I mean, you think about there are 133 FBS Division One athletic departments, and then there's another 200 and some that are in Division One overall. And most of them need people to come in who are trained, who are young, who understand how social media works and who have the technical skills to do that. And then you 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 add to that all of these streaming services and all of these networks. I mean, there, there's so many productions happening and, you know, the, You'll get you know, at Indiana soccer uh, on the Big Ten Network earlier in the week, and and those broadcasters, I believe, were up in Chicago. But but the, there was crew here operating the cameras and and doing the game, and that's a system that happens everywhere. So, you know, the technical aspects of content production and content creation within sports have just exploded because there's so many more opportunities to publish the content and get out in front of people. And you can't afford not to have people. And that's where I think our students are really benefiting right now. If you have a question or a comment uh, for either Jeremy Gray or Galen Clavio, you can call us today at 812-855-0811 or toll-free, 877-285-9348. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us your question there, or you can use email, news at indianapublicmedia.org. I want to go back to this expansion issue. We've had a question come in about, about and again, Jeremy, I'm going to turn to you first on this because you're the sports administrator, it sounds like, for six sports. Um, so you see a lot of student-athletes on a regular basis, and I think the, the issue here is is in terms of travel and the different things that are, are have to be done, how does that how is that going to affect and how are you going to monitor how it affects A, the academics of the students and B, the mental health of the students who have to balance travel more, perhaps more, perhaps not, um, with uh, their schoolwork? Uh, it's a great question. And uh 
you know, one thing that I, I think is a misnomer is that teams struggle on the road because they're scared of the crowd. Teams struggle on the road because people don't feel that good after a cross-country flight. <laughs> like, uh, it, it, it takes a physical uh, and mental toll on somebody. Uh, you're out of your own bed. You're out of your own routine. Um, and these things, uh, if not monitored or managed, uh, can compound to cause, you know, more significant problems than losing by two points to USC. Um, so I think the investment in sports psychology and uh, support staff through, you know, Maddie White's area, the Excellence Academy, to make sure that we're uh, taking care of the athletes as people, I think uh, is going to be uh of greater importance uh, going forward. Academically, I, I, I think the conversations that the Big Ten is having to try to make these schedules manageable are really important conversations. And I think we we might have to shift the paradigm on the way that we think about scheduling, period. You know, like, you know what? Uh, our bye week is going to be the week after we go to the West Coast because it does take a long... You, you don't feel great after coming back from California for a couple of days. And so... I think we have to be sensible and we have not to, to do trial and error with students, but if we think we have a lot of good ideas in year one of this new, new reality and four of the ideas are good and one of them didn't work out well, we got to be willing to junk, junk what we were doing year by year and not like, well, you know, we'll wait six years until, you know, our current schedule expires to address this problem. We have to be much more nimble nimble than that. Um, and again, I, I think it's I think the ones that will be the most challenged are the sports that have very intense schedules crammed into one semester. Uh, I think it, it will not be the basketballs, in my opinion. It will not be football. It will be things like volleyball where they they play 30, 30 matches in the fall. Um, and you start adding a ton of travel to that. That becomes really challenging. Softball playing 56 games, baseball playing 56 games in the spring. That's really, really challenging. I also think we need to, um, you know, uh, you know, manage summer school uh, because that can't be the solution. Uh, you know, don't go home. Just stay here in the summer and then you can only take 12 credit hours in the fall. And that's the way you're, you're going to manage it. No, these students have to still have the ability to go home. So we, we have to think about it holistically that way. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Jeremy, let me ask you a question on that because there were a couple of years ago there was a movement for men's soccer to be turned into a fall and spring sport. I'm actually not totally sure where that proposal's at right now, but I mean, has there been any talk that you've heard at the NCAA level to taking a volleyball and saying, you know, there's not a reason to have this is just a fall sport. What if we spread the schedule out over an extra few months? Yeah, there is there is talk of that. I mean, there's talk in baseball and softball to move the start date uh from february to march and finishing the back half of the season largely speaking when the students are done with class um so there are those conversations i think those conversations are going to accelerate and i would i would say that the atlantic coast conference now has skin in this game as well as well as the big 12. you've got everybody from you know west virginia to colorado in that league so um i i, I think they used to vote against such things because uh, each school has a certain geographic advantage. Florida schools wanted to play baseball in February, so good baseball players from Indiana would go to Florida for college instead of coming to Indiana. But I think with these new travel things, um, people might be willing to, re to rethink some long-held positions. Well, I, th I think, you know, there's a there's a lot to unpack in all of this. I mean, the, you were talking about the, you know, the, Maddie White's position. We did invite Maddie to come on today. She's on the road on her way to Maryland. Um, what kind of services are there right now for, in terms of sports psychologists, in terms of, of support for the student athletes? Jeremy? Well, it's always dangerous uh, to not uh, be totally prepared to talk about all the things that Maddie does because she is an <laughs> indispensable part of the athletic department. Uh, and I don't want to forget like some some big leg of the school here, but we have two full time sports psychologists. We have a team of sports nutritionists. I think that's actually a big component of this, too. Uh, I mean, you've come back from a vacation and the belt doesn't fit quite as well, uh, you know, uh, so so it, it's important to mind their 
nutrition and, you know, stick to a routine. Um, and then you look at our academic services, uh, you know, each school, each, each sport has, has an academic advisor that helps them with scheduling, working with faculty on missed class time, things like that. And we've put a ton of resources. Fred Glass deserves a ton of credit for this. I think we had the ninth largest uh, academic staff in the Big Ten, and that was when we only had 11 teams. And I think we're second largest academic staff in the Big Ten now. Um, and it's not to get them in easy classes or help them do their homework, but it's to 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 make sure they're monitoring, providing tutorial support, communicating with with professors about projects and things, you know, as they get into, uh, you know, th these travel situations. So I, we're, we're doing our best to try to provide as much support as we can. But I think with the additional money that we're getting, we have to we have to funnel that directly to student athlete services like that. I think it's, it's worth, uh, I, I want to let you answer this, but it's my impression that student athletes here have to go to class. And I know the few times I've had student athletes in classes that I've taught, I get a note from Maddie White that says, this athlete is this athlete been in class. Or I've seen a, uh, you know, one of those golf carts driving around looking to make then people sticking their head in the classroom to make sure the student athlete is there. Um, how close of a, um, what, how close of a, a view do you have of all the student athletes and how they're doing academically? And I will say, uh, and uh, Lori will know this, uh, getting to know a lot of our student athletes over the years, the lion's share of our student athletes would be wildly successful without playing sports at any academic institution in the country. And, you know, the team, you know, I, I oversee swimming and they have a 3.6 team GPA. Uh, so they largely speaking do very well in class and actually a huge component of recruiting pitches. And I know Galen's been a part of some of these is the academic programming that we have here on campus. So uh, I, I want to make sure that we put a stake in the ground that, you know, the 700 student athletes that we have, largely speaking, are very committed students uh, who, you know, are students first and athletes second. I would also say that some uh, have come from backgrounds where they do need support. Um, and we've seen how that's actually changed their life in the four years that they've been here. Um, how much do we monitor? Uh, I get this both on both sides, both as a sport administrator and as an adjunct faculty member. You know, about every three, four weeks, uh, there is there is a note that's sent from somebody in academic services making sure that this person is going to class. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we have is actually the transfer portal. Um, we want to make sure, hey, I know that you're going to uh, South Dakota State next year and you've already said so. You need to make sure that you finish your coursework here so that you don't get in trouble credit wise at this next school. And we don't get penalized for a bad academic progress report score that can hurt hurt us as an institution. So so tracking that stuff is uh, really important. But we do not have microchips in their book bags to make sure that they're going to class or anything like that. It's not a surveillance state, but I, it is something that we have to check on. And I think we have to check on it, too, because they do periodically have to miss class and making sure that we communicate with the faculty beforehand that they will be missing that class. Can we take this test? on Tuesday instead of Thursday. Can we turn this paper? Can I join this conversation, you know, from a hotel room on the road? Those type of conversations beforehand, I think are really important. Yeah, yeah. We're getting close to the end of our time and we could probably spend an entire uh, show on this topic, which is NIL. But just quickly, is, is there anything about the expansion here that will affect what's going on with name image likeness? deals that students are making? Is it is is this more advantageous for those who are actually are able to have those contracts, which is not true of every athlete, of course? What's, what's the interplay there? Well, I think to some degree it's going to be helpful because I think you're going to be in one of the more prominent conferences even more so now than before. And you know, certainly with local NIL, that's always going to be there. Like there's always going to be people in Indiana that are going to want to support Indiana athletes. But on a national level, uh, you know, we see Adidas now signing NIL deals with athletes at, at universities. We see some of these other larger companies. 
you're going to have a better shot, I think, at those sorts of opportunities as an athlete if you are playing in the Big Ten or the SEC or a school that's going to be on national television regularly. I mean, that's how you build Mm -hmm. a brand, and the branding is essentially what helps you get the NIL deals in most cases. And I I would say, too, that things are about to be – continue to get more competitive and um it's been a bit since i've been in an economics class but the more competitive an industry is it tends to become more lucrative as well and um i would imagine that student athletes will end up being the beneficiary of that a couple more you know nil kind of questions one i think last time you guys were here nil was I mean, and I was just getting older every day, right? <laughs> so the idea then was, you know, the competitive balance can shift because some schools are going to be be able to, uh, whether it's legal or not, there's going to be, there'll be schools where NIL deals are going to be larger than at other schools. There's going to be recruiting of student athletes to come to our school. We'll figure out, I mean, not legally, but it's going to happen. We know I don't think it's legal, but it's going to happen. Legal, yes. Maybe not Maybe not allowed by rules, but right. not illegal. Right, so. right, right, right. So, I mean, are we, are we seeing those issues grow as NIL becomes more embedded, or are we seeing them addressed more? Uh, great question. Great question. <laughs> uh, um, I would say uh, the advantages that schools had – prior to the NIL era are still existent. Um, Alabama and Ohio State always recruited well in football because they did have extraordinarily nice facilities and large recruiting budgets. And those schools probably have extraordinary NIL opportunities. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, the same would be true for Indiana basketball. The advantages that Indiana basketball had over Vanderbilt basketball still exist. It's just manifested in a different form. Uh, so instead of in facilities, there might be an NIL support, you know, uh, you know, you know, or opportunities that are, are 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 provided to student athletes. And so, I think the advantages are largely the same. Uh, they just they just kind of uh, come to fruition in a different way now. And you're seeing money just directed in different ways. I think Mike Loxley, who's the head coach at Maryland for football, uh, had a quote a few months ago about how. The kids don't care about all of these beautiful facilities that have been built. They just they want the NIL check. And that was always kind of the contention of the people who felt like the facilities race was a form of gold plating where it's like, well, we have all this money, but we're not going to pay it to athletes directly. Instead, we're going to build a new practice facility or a new this or that. You're now seeing that money really having to be directed towards athlete NIL. Uh, It's and I think Jeremy's exactly right. The the schools that were the most prominent in the marketplace prior to NIL are still going to largely be there. I think the early promise of NIL was that you could elevate yourself up to a higher echelon, but I think that evened out pretty quickly. The big question now is, you know, how does this end up playing out in terms of, you know, do you know, does the does the does the relationship between athletes and the schools change legally? Is it forced to change because of labor law? Uh, or because of some kind of ruling from the courts. NIL, I think, isn't going away anytime soon. It's just going to be interesting to see if that ends up fitting in with other items in the mix. Because right now, it can be the dominant force in making a player go one place or another because there's not any other really direct compensation going on. But that could change. Um, we're we are uh, getting down to the end here, but uh, so maybe, uh, and this may also be my my lack of of deep insight into where we are with conferences. Could could one of you just do a quick recap of how many conferences there are sure. out there, and and who the who the big ones are, and then I'm going to ask each of you to speculate a little. Mm-hmm. about what you see happening with some of those conferences that seem to be losing members. I'll, but Galen, go first. I'll go real quick. So in football right now, there are really going to be only four major conferences left standing. You've got the SEC and the Big Ten, who are clearly the top two conferences. A decent step down, you've got the Big 12, which is, uh, you know, that it's a big conference now because they've changed a lot of members, but Oklahoma State, Kansas, so on and so forth, and then the ACC. And then you've got 
what what you is called the Group of Five conferences, which is like the the Mid American Conference, uh, the 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 Sun the Sun Belts in that mix, Conference USA. Uh, now in basketball, it's different. There are thirty two conferences in college basketball, but what really matters right now is the football structure. Okay, and I would. So if, if you're asking me to do the crystal ball, and this yep. is Jerry yep. Gray, not the athletic department saying this, what I anticipate, and I don't know how many schools it'll be, and I don't know what schools it will be, is that it will be a little bit like the old AFL and NFL in the late 1960s, where you will have two competing leagues, the SEC and the Big Ten, feel like the last two that will be on the island. How many teams? I don't know. But they will compete amongst themselves. They will produce a champion of those leagues and then those uh, even maybe with a playoff structure. And that will funnel into a final game, which in the late 1960s became known as the Super Bowl. And the SEC champion will compete against the Big Ten champion for the college football national championship. But it'll be two very large, very lucrative conferences that will meet at the end. So what happens to, you know, a really, really good team from outside of that conference? They're just left out i would i would say at, at this point and i know that florida state and clemson might be the two out when notre dame florida state clemson and notre dame are probably the outliers i think you're already in a reality where it's almost inconceivable that a team that's not already in the big 10 or sec could win a national championship in football it's a, it's almost impossible to to wrap your mind around somebody other than existing Big Ten or SEC schools doing that. Okay. I just have to ask very quickly, the strength of the NCAA basketball tournament, is it continuing to be as strong as it once was, and will it continue in this new era? I mean, they've they've got a contract that runs through 2030. I think it's fine until then. But we just saw a, a tournament being organized in Las Vegas, which is going to feature power conference teams that uh, didn't get invited to the NCAA, a direct shot across the bow of the NCAA, who specifically asked Fox not to do that tournament. I think there's a future, much like Jeremy highlighted with football, where the NCAA tournament, as we know it, ends up being a competition among teams from those conferences. But it's a little different. Because basketball is – there's three times the schools in basketball. It's just going to depend on who's running it. I don't know if it's going to be the NCAA long term. All right. We are out of time. Thank you, Galen Clavio, and thank you, Jeremy Gray. So it's always great to have you two on the show. Uh, for my co-host, Lori McRobbie, and for engineer Mike Pashkash and producer Nathan Moore, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for, thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org and from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.